Chapter Ten, Part One of the Pathway of the Pioneer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Pathway of the Pioneer by Dolph Willard. Chapter Ten, Part One. What of the darkness? Is it very fair? Out of the day's deceiving light we call day that shows man so great and God so small that hides the stars and magnifies the grass oh is the darkness too a lying glass or undistracted do ye find truth there what of the darkness is it very fair richard le gallienne the cheapest breakfast you could have outside cereals or mere bread and marmalade is a tin of sardines particularly if you do not like them for the smallest size in some brands costs threepence halfpenny and contains some twelve sardines worked out this comes to a farthing and eight forty-fifths or one one point six as you please per breakfast because it is morally certain that if you do not like the fishy salt oily flavour of the creature you will only eat one at a sitting therefore your breakfast is but a fraction over the farthing for its principal dish and even bacon will not work out cheaper while kippers are dried-up luxuries beatrice varley had been living on small tins of sardines ever since she found that they lasted out better than other things and eating a poor breakfast in consequence it would have been as cheap or cheaper to keep to bread and butter and marmalade but as school began at nine fifteen and she had half an hour's walk first she was prone to a hollow cavity inside her chest sometimes about eleven o'clock and for the sake of keeping herself in health she decided that a good breakfast was a necessity and inconsistently ate a bad one her deduction was false and her calculation disprovable by a child of eight but mathematics had never been her specialty and b a flatly told her that she was weak in logic after the sardine breakfast she had a scramble that landed her tired and tingling at the schoolhouse door by nine o'clock having begun a hard day by a mile or two's breathless walking plump on top of ill-digested food beatrice was distinctly extravagant and cannot be commended she would walk beyond her strength to save a penny omnibus fare and then would spend the penny on a bunch of violets or some other lovely indulgence that seemed a necessity to her nature the school where she worked was a private enterprise and not a large one at that though it numbered fifty girls day pupils and weekly boarders of the lower middle class they were mostly the daughters of small tradesmen who wanted them to attain to an imitation of the education and a smattering of the accomplishments of a higher social grade beatrice was junior mistress but she undertook to start even the older girls in music and her quivering soul was harrowed by some five or six lessons a day at various degrees of attainment but all tending to the same horrid end for the ambition of the girl's parents was that violet or daisy or rose should learn to play a piece whether or no it was incorrectly played did not matter honest scales were pushed aside for something with a tune and variations that could be strummed before visitors with crimson cheeks and sticky hands 
and Beatrice, trying to forget that she was a musician, guided them patiently through each dreary stage of practice, until the thumped-out rhythm became mechanical, and only the bass went wrong. Her woes did not stop at the actual tuition. They were increased by a personal proximity that tormented her to the last strain of endurance. The piano was her sphere, whether as teacher or accompanist, and she not only played the marches for the musical drill on certain days in the week, but had to be present during violin lessons, and sometimes play the accompaniment for those pupils who learned the instrument. The school prided itself on the fact that it had two masters as well as mistresses for drawing and music. The art master was a jovial little fat man who was popular with the girls because he made jokes and was even capable of the familiarities of practical joking when the head mistress was not present. He was a wise man in his own sphere and could count upon his pupils' giggling adherence. On the other hand, the music master did not seek for popularity and carried his head too high to see if a schoolgirl eyed him with favor. He was irascible over a false note and he was curt in manner rather than ingratiating. Had he been mincing or effeminate, the school might have worked off its resentment in vulgar nicknames and private lampoons, but as he happened to be a broad-shouldered young man, with a very English appearance, and nothing artistic about him save his temper, there was war between master and pupils, a war which resulted in intentional blank stupidity on the part of the girls, and a curbed wrath for which the music-master could find no outlet save on the small dark head of the music-mistress. Beatrice dreaded Wednesday and Friday with a special kind of fascination. On these days she had to attend four violin lessons and endure fine sarcasms from the music-master which passed harmlessly over the pupil's head but made her writhe. Had she not played for the learner during the long, tedious hours of her practice, and was she not plainly responsible for the horrible jangle of harmonies which the scraping bow evolved? She used to sit with her big moony eyes and white face, apparently as unaffected as the fiddler, while every nerve in her slight body felt raw and twanged to the catgut. Sometimes in the quietest of her silvery tones, she would give back one of the taunts flung at her by the exasperated teacher, who would then shrug his shoulders as if Miss Varley's temper were a known curse in the establishment. And two or three hours afterwards, Beatrice would fling herself face downwards on the hard black couch in her own small room and cry her heart out because she had been stung beyond endurance. How can he, how can anyone like me? He says I have a beastly tongue. He told me so straight out one day, she panted to herself, her morbid, unbalanced nature torturing itself. He doesn't like to look at me even. I am dark and ugly, and I can't even be civil and indifferent. Justice might have pleaded for her that the music master had not always been civil and indifferent either though he looked like the football-playing, beef-eating young Englishman who teaches boxing rather than music. He had all the impulses as well as the irritability of the artist. He played the heart out of Beatrice, 
when he drew the bow over the strings of his own violin and sometimes they forgot their animosities in mutual tastes and natural affinity perhaps half their cruelty to each other was caused by the strange love of power which lurks at the root of human nature in a sexual attraction a power that loves to show how it can hurt as well as heal beatrice knew that she could irritate the music-master as no one else in the school could do for as a rule he was a very indifferent young man who felt himself out of his sphere amongst the daughters of small tradesmen and their governesses and he knew equally well that he could make the small grave-eyed girl wince with his carefully chosen sneers a reaction from this petty warfare was all the more dangerous because it was a surprise to both of them they neither of them meant to capitulate and they had both at various times been taken unawares there was a wonderful spring twilight in beatrice's memory when the room smelt of carnations perhaps someone had made the headmistress a present or one of the weekly boarders who was a daughter of a florist had brought them the pupil had not jarred her teacher's nerves as much as usual during the violin lesson and had been commended and further the music-master had condescended to remark that her progress was probably because miss barley had seen that she practised intelligently if she would only try to see that it was so always it would make their joint task so much easier but i do try said poor beatrice stooping to pick up a fallen piece of music i have sat through hour after hour trying to prepare them for your lessons you don't know the injustice of the accusation coming after the strain on her patience choked her she groped for the music sheets through a mist and two large tears gathered in her tragic dark eyes the pupil had rushed off the instant she was released and there was no one to see her humiliation save the cause of it let me help you said the music-master with mechanical courtesy for he was a gentleman and he knelt down beside her to gather up the music also and found two great tears fallen like jewels upon the title-page i am sorry i did not mean that don't think i underrate your work i know how much i owe you he said he shot a quick glance at her beatrice's heavy hair had fallen forward to blind her more than the tears and it was dark groping under the piano she thought but would not let herself think clearly that someone was stroking her hair then a confused and broken sentence touched her hearing and she was lifted up and stood in the circle of arms and was ringed with fire the two hot passionate natures flamed up and met for an instant the girl drifting in an infinite dream where she was kissed and caressed and called pretty names the man hardly more responsible as he fondled the feminine thing he had found too near his own manhood the few rose-coloured minutes stood out like holy fire against the long dull background of drudgery during weeks and months and years they were always rose-coloured minutes to beatrice scented with carnations then the long weeks folded down again in a grey veil which she was always unconsciously hoping would lift and show her a rose-coloured world and the long days were only sections of lessons 
nine to ten history ten to eleven geography eleven to twelve music etc etc punctuated by the giggling of the girls the pettinesses of the mistresses the bursts of ill-temper from the music-master for he was as variable and liable to moods as beatrice herself and she did not find the uncertainty any more bearable in another than her world found it in her of all the society magda and beatrice were the two most likely to take offence or to come within sight of quarrelling there were weeks indeed during which magda was injured and beatrice sulked with one or other of the easier going of their friends that it never came to a quarrel was due to the strenuous reality of their lives nusotra learned to pass over anything more trivial than the problem of bread-getting and have little time for fancied slights or resented actions in the fight for existence they have looked so hard into the medusa face of life that they have grown impervious to pin-pricks and if they have lost some feminine graces they have also slipped the swaddling bands of their sex besides which their friendship for each other is a proven thing tested in the furnace of the struggle for existence and triumphant even over the instinct of self-preservation nevertheless beatrice was not easy to live with as yet she was young enough for the blood to be hot in her veins and experience had not tamed her into that endurance whose end has never been reached save in death which is an attribute of women the music-master told her brutally that she had a pose for every day of her life she acted to herself for lack of any more interested audience the half-truth of his taunt drove beatrice into stupid silence in his presence for some time afterwards and made him bring a new accusation of obstinate rudeness sometimes after a bout with him she wondered that she could care in the least what he thought or said and her whole slim body felt bruised with her pent-up rage but though she could hate him she could never school herself to indifference it is almost impossible for a woman to hate the only personality that brings any interest into her life and stands to her for colour and harmony and light in a toneless world of all professions that of a teacher or governess is most narrowing she has a routine of work which strains the interest she might otherwise take in her profession yet she is probably so situated that she never hears of anything else those who teach talk shop to a greater degree than is the case in any other calling except perhaps that of the stage and it is shop of the most limited description being generally bounded by the walls of the school which at the moment makes the world to them it is seldom that there is any masculine element sufficiently emphatic in their lives to leaven the feminine lump and so monotony grinds the youth out of them until the mighty universe of which they know so much becomes only a theory on a blackboard but beatrice was worse off than the majority in that she did not even take an interest in the details of her employment being soul-weary of it 
she had once in a moment of mistaken enthusiasm asked three or four of her fellow-mistresses to tea under the impression that once they were all together and away from the school she would get beyond the routine and technique of the daily grind and discover their real tastes as it happened their real tastes fortunately for them were bounded by their profession and to beatrice dismay she had no sooner started the science mistress and the french mistress on tea and muffins than they plunged straight into the iniquities and capabilities of their respective pupils i say what does maud smith do in your class said the french mistress desperately stretching her long limbs before beatrice fire and evidently regarding the present as an excellent opportunity to compare notes with her companion for to the teacher who loves her work the child in her hands is the malleable clay on which she imprints her capabilities by success or the reverse the french mistress was a long lazy girl with a handsome face and an emotional nature beatrice sitting by in increasing silence discovered suddenly that she had always faintly disliked her she doesn't do anything said the science mistress disgustedly except set her clothes alight in the chemical laboratory or cut her fingers with the razors at the botany class as to brains she hasn't any she can be painstaking and get hold of a fact by memory and then when she has made herself stupid with learning it she is surprised and injured that i am not satisfied who's that broke in the arithmetic mistress maud smith oh come she's not so bad she can do a little though she's not brilliant hm sums are evidently her forte said science grimly all i can tell you is that she'll never pass her senior oxford and miss seaton the headmistress will think i am no crammer beatrice who hated the said maud smith because of many hours of hopeless tuition in czarina and the cavallaria rusticana felt as if she heard those splay fingers once more thumping out the a natural in the massacred intermezzo she changed the subject to books and in a pause of conversation with french who had plainly one ear on the others she heard science say to arithmetic oh they are an a school and arithmetic answered well even if we are on b you are bound to give three hours to science and you'll have to have an assistant for you can't do it after that beatrice tried no more experiments in dissociating her fellow victims from the school they did not want to be dissociated they were far more interested in the extending capacity of maud smith's brain and what it could take in than in what george meredith and thomas hardy could turn out it added another bitterness to beatrice lot that she felt herself a pariah even in her profession and cut off from the comradeship of mutual interest b a was the only woman she knew in the teacher's world who could cheerfully talk shop or with equal intelligence and interest discuss the whole wide world of art as though education did not exist but then b a was rather exceptional in all ways and nusotra cherished her accordingly as things were in beatrice existence it was the music-master who kept her at least stingingly alive 
by the friction of their intercourse the world was bitter by reason of him but not sterile the term usually ended in a dreadful afternoon function called the breaking up when the parents of the girls made the familiar schoolrooms seem horribly underbred as well as sordid beatrice loathed the very atmosphere of these ceremonies as well as the people who attended and it was with abject apologies that as the governesses were allowed to ask a friend she had sometimes begged alma or hilda or winnie to come and support her they did so cheerfully in borrowed plumes for it is a point of honour among nous autres to look nice when backing each other up and as somebody is generally at a low ebb in finance and has not all the intricate details that go to make up a woman's appearance at a party it becomes necessary for those who have to lend to those who have not on one historical occasion winnie went to a journalistic at home with magda in a skirt of hilda's a blouse of her own alma's hat frank's gloves and beatrice umbrella it was no use borrowing anything of flair except ready money because her possessions consisted mainly in a black silk evening gown and a blue serge skirt alma said she collected blue serge skirts she had so many in various stages of decay and it is certain that as fast as one wore out she bought another without being able to bring herself to part with the discarded garment the black silk frock had appeared in comedy when alma played near london and had dined at quite respectable suburban tables when frank was asked out but for that matter evening clothes were so general a property that sometimes the girls were themselves ignorant as to who had been the original owner the breaking-up party following on the twilight that was scented with carnations was however an event to which beatrice looked forward in secret not because the tradesmen papas and perspiring mamas would be more possible or of a different class not because there would be any outsiders who would be more desirable or bread and butter and cake of a kinder quality not because daisy or rose or violet would strum out the two familiar pieces with less sticky fingers or because she hoped that her patient tuition would show any marked success in any pupil she looked forward to the breaking up for the simply feminine reason that one pair of eyes would see her in a setting that was not ink-stained or so native to every day that he thought last term's blouse and skirt the same as this in fact the music-master would be present and as it was the summer term beatrice had an excuse for wearing muslin the something pretty of her wistful taste how she hated ugly things and how keenly she appreciated the daintiness of delicate fabrics and the froth of frills until it seemed to her that her love of such things was almost a vice in itself she was not going to borrow this year she was animated to the extravagance of buying a whole white muslin gown that would not be so very serviceable afterwards and having it made for her in order to look well for once in one man's sulky blue eyes and she decked herself for sacrifice as woman has since the beginning of creation it was a dream dress 
and beatrice enjoyed herself in it in anticipation as she could have done on no real occasion though she had been able to choose and decree every minute of her own happiness it had a very slight train more a whisper of skirts over the floor than a train and was fluffed with frills there were lace and chiffon about her slight bust that disguised her thinness and into the broad satin ribbon at her waist she tucked a bunch of carnations in perspective the memory of their scent alone was something to enjoy beforehand beatrice had had so few dresses that had given her any pleasure and the feminine trait in her was so strong that that one long white muslin gown became a real thing to her a thing that wrapped her future in its folds and was magic and mysterious it happened that the evening before the break-up of the school she sat in her own rooms putting the last finishing touches to the fateful dress such intimate and personal trifles as no dressmaker could do while she dreamed over it at the same time but any one who had looked closely at the young face in the july evening might have thought that in some fantastic painter's brain it could have belonged either to a bride with her wedding dress or a maiden sewing her shroud for the touch of the tragic was on beatrice at all times and the end of the term had left her dragged enough to make her face suggest the verge of illness the veins stood out too sharply on her temples and if her face had not been so young and round it would have looked haggard sardine breakfasts and overwork coupled with the mental strain engendered by the music-master had not agreed with beatrice hilda had spoken privately to alma about her only the last time the society had met but alma's remedy sounded a doubtful one i know i think she will break down if she goes on with this school life she said i want her to use her voice i have spoken to butterman and clark about her and she must go up and have her voice tried the next time they have a batch of girls singing for chorus hilda drew her eyebrows together and considered the subject she knew beatrice's temperament probably better than the rest of nuzotra and stage life from alma's experience did not seem the cure for neurotic ailments none the less the suggestion had appealed to beatrice herself though merely as a means of escape her voice was rather exceptional and had long represented a stairway of hope in her life whereby she might climb from uncongenial drudgery to something at least enjoyable in spite of hard work anything was better than the atmosphere and the employment against which she chafed at present and she had an honest little desire to get away from the dangers of carnations and summer twilights the fact that she was fundamentally loath to leave the school drove her into doing so if possible from the common sense which had been drilled into her since the days of the charitable institution where her education was begun she did not particularly look forward to the associations and the privations of stage life for alma had taken her behind the scenes too genuinely for that but she did long for movement and change as one longs for an anaesthetic to ease one of a too familiar pain 
It was of this possible change in her existence that Beatrice was thinking as she sat sewing at her dainty white gown, rather than of the music-master, who had been more cross-grained than ever during the past week. It had become more pain than pleasure to think of him, and she resolutely turned her mind to the impersonal subject, for Butterman and Clark were trying voices for a comic opera to go out on an autumn tour and beatrice had decided to take her courage in both hands and see if they would engage her for chorus at the magnificent salary of some twenty-five shillings a week perhaps if she were lucky she might even get thirty but she had learned to starve and the prospect of a low wage did not trouble her much unfortunately alma could not go with her to her ordeal for she was taking a special week at brighton and the trial of voices came off at the sovereignty theatre the day after the school breaking up she grew really absorbed in her speculations and did not hear the door-bell ring or her landlady's foot on the stairs when there came a tap on the door she said come in in her pretty soft voice and did not glance up the door had been opened and shut before she realized that the music-master was in the room in her room for the first time looking at her across the snowy pile of muslin on her lap with a half amusement half apology in his vexed blue eyes i've come round to arrange about the accompaniments with you if you don't mind he said beatrice was as composed as if she were chaperoning a violin lesson and the pupils were giggling on which occasions there was always a faint irony in her downcast eyes and quiet lips no i don't mind she said and only glanced from the work on her lap to indicate a chair won't you sit down she suggested the music-master sat down a little embarrassed out of his dignity by the novel situation he had never seen beatrice under domestic influences before and the white muslin frills seemed to make the soft feminine look of her more apparent than usual he did not feel at all inclined to be irritated as he sat in the shabby armchair opposite to her but he wished she would speak the little soft dark head seemed to be bent by its own masses of hair and the white face was as a match to the tinder of his eyes in her tortured heart the girl was praying to some god to rescue her why has he come why is this thing happening to me now she thought wildly and then the overwrought overtired woman's soul cried out for judgment against her lot my punishment is greater than i can bear well she said laconically for it was beatrice curse that the crisis of a lifetime would not loosen her tongue or give her the power to help her own cause well echoed the music-master a trifle pettishly are you going to play them or am i i will of course if you wish it said beatrice with the touch of bitterness she would have given ten years of her life to have avoided but i thought that as it is such an important occasion you would perhaps prefer to see your pupils through their task yourself as if i cared he wriggled his broad shoulders discontentedly against the old leather chair and his shaven lips took a wry twist you and i know the inevitable torture of such exhibitions and their real native value then on the whole you would prefer me to share the torture 
For the life of her she could not help it, but by a saving grace of fate she looked up and smiled after the words, and though he frowned he met the misty brown eyes and forgot to be cross. Yes, he nodded. Of course I should prefer you to be tortured. The emphasis made the words almost a caress, and the scent of long dead carnations seemed to hover ghost-like in the air. Beatrice went on sewing, and the music-master asked permission to smoke. He took out an old briar, and proceeded to give a vaguely masculine flavour to Beatrice's room, and even to her gown for the party. And she sat there, in a happy dream, of which the blue spiral fumes of the tobacco seemed a part, and she knew that it would all pass too soon, but she played that it would last, just as she had always done about the things she most desired in life. When Beatrice was a little girl she had played at going to children's parties because she never went to one. Later she had played at going to dances, and would tell Flair or Alma all about these dream occasions, and what she had worn and which partner she liked best, even what they said to her if coaxed. She had never been disappointed of a pleasure, but the angel of her imagination had whispered its ideal possibilities to comfort her. It was all a game. Well, life itself had seemed a sorrier game to Beatrice than her dreams of happiness. And it is probable that the music-master enjoyed himself, for men love to see the feminine creature which has interested them in a proper domestic setting. So he talked about music, and even let slip a hint or two of his private ambitions and aspirations, while Beatrice felt that the confidence raised her to a level she had never touched before, by reason of a sense of honoured delight. When the July evening darkened into dusk, and she lit a lamp, he did not move, but a clock striking made him start at last. Ten, by Jove, and I've been gassing here for hours. Why didn't you turn me out, Miss Varley? Perhaps I did not want to, said Beatrice, but so indifferently that the truth did not startle either of them. She smiled her inscrutable smile in the shadow of her rich hair, and he thought her eyes were like those of some martyrs in a shrine. Haven't you finished with that finery yet? he said half-teasingly. You have been at it all evening, and you are now trying to beautify it still more. How women do love their clothes! I have so few, you see, said Beatrice imperturbably. When I do have anything pretty, it becomes an event in my life. And you like pretty things? His voice was actually a caress now, as he stood up to say good-bye. You ought always to have pretty things, too, oughtn't you? Something in her face and swaying figure put him in mind of Sulve's song, and a line of the far-away haunting melody was really in his brain as they shook hands. Sulve's song that means many things to different people, but to the music-master just then meant shadowy hair and brown eyes with black lashes. God watch over thee at the dawn of each day, the dawn of each day. God bless thee every time that thou kneelest to pray, thou kneelest to pray. Perhaps Grieg is responsible for what followed. I would not blame the music-master, who, I suppose, was only a man, in that dreariest of excuses usually offered to God for being lower than the beasts which perish. 
possibly the creator and the created regard that only from a different standpoint it is certain that they look for different results beatrice wandered after her guest to the doorway as if her restless feet strayed against her will outside in the passage the dingy gas-lamp had not been lit and there was a decent darkness to hide the ugliness of the surroundings the man drew the door nearly shut behind them the effect being as if he put out the lamp in the room they had just left and took the girl in his arms letting her rest against the reality of his broad chest and feeling for her eyes with his lips to close them with kisses beatrice reached her hand up to his neck in her turn remembering how tanned he was for he had cycled all the summer with a typical love of fresh air and exercise both of them kissed the memory of what they could not actually see the man's tanned face and the girl's eyes and hair seeming to each in turn the reason of their desire it was very good to cling and kiss even in the narrow darkness of a london lodging-house and they had no wish for a less material bliss at the moment nor did they repent of the natural impulse and cry shame shame comes when the apple is eaten and nothing is left but the core beatrice did not flinch from her fruit-gathering as yet or ask pardon she dozed through that night lying in her small narrow bed face to face with the bare window until the london dawn came past the chimney-pots to wake her from her fitful sleep and she opened her unwilling eyes to meet the day for even the joy to come and the wearing of a white gown for one pair of vexed blue eyes could not altogether rival the feverish pleasure of those dreams which were scented with carnations and alive with kisses the morning was a hazy golden vision during which she helped to make the monotonous schoolrooms as tolerable to party eyes as might be for lessons were set aside on this momentous occasion and the schoolgirls thought of their frocks and ribbons as much or more than the teachers beatrice sang softly as she arranged flowers and placed the refreshment tables and hardly cared to eat a scrappy luncheon before rushing back to her room to change her dress clothes are the comedy of the rich and the tragedy of the poor when a woman with unlimited pin-money is dissatisfied with her own choice it gives her at least the interest of choosing all over again and of shopping afresh but when her sister of the meagre dress allowance makes a mistake she must abide by it if beatrice extravagance in the way of white muslin had been a failure it would have hampered her for some months without even the ephemeral pleasure for which she had risked it she certainly could not have replaced it even by something more serviceable but by grace of providence the gown was a success from its tucked and chiffoned bodice to the last snowy frill on the graceful skirt or was there a grin on the face of fate as she arrayed herself in it and looked at herself in the glass she had parted her hair at the side as nuzotra loved it and tucked the carnations into her waistband and the effect was all and more than she had planned only the details of her appearance were borrowed alma's seed-pearls round her throat frank's pretty slippers on her feet 
a high tortoise-shell comb of flares supporting the heavily massed hair. The reflection in the glass was the last good gift that life held in store for Beatrice, and beyond lay sorrow, but she turned away unknowing. End of chapter 10, part 1